Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And uh, in this episode, we are venturing into the How Stuff Works ossuary. Because like, uh, like any great uh, educational institute, mm-hmm. um, we're, of course, uh, situated over uh, an underground uh, catacomb. Uh, stuff full of uh, human remnants. We have this wonderful bone chandelier hanging over us. Uh, it, it's a delightful place, and uh, so we hope that you'll join us for this episode as we uh, explore some of the, the specimens we have around here. Indeed, and in case your company doesn't have an ossuary, um, this is also known as the Bone House, the facility for the storage of human bones, of course. Uh, now, ossuaries, uh, you'll, you'll find these throughout human history, sometimes not with such a, an elegant title. Uh, again, going back to just a bone house or even a bone pit. Um, you look back to ancient Persia, for instance, uh, the Zoroastrians uh, used a, a, a version of, uh, of an ossuary. Uh, they would uh, they would take uh, corpses, put them on top of their, um, uh, their towers of silence and uh, allow birds and the elements to break the bodies down to the bones, and then mm-hmm. the bones would be stored away in, uh, for safekeeping. And, uh, and actually, we see some truly ancient bone pits uh, out there that provide us uh, with some of the earliest evidence, even DNA evidence of early humans and pre-human hominids. For instance, back in 2013, a German team from the Max Planck Institute was able to identify 28 different remains from Spain's Sema de las Hoises, or the Bone Pit, which contained 400,000-year-old Homo Heidelbergenus hominids. So we've we've been dumping our skeletons into... Uh, various tombs and caves and oubliettes for quite a while. Uh, it's a grand tradition and, uh, and one that, one that I hope continues. And it's pragmatic. Um, and we're going to actually look at one of probably the most stellar examples of an ossuary, which is the catacombs of Paris. You've been lucky enough to witness this place firsthand. Yes, I have been to the empire of death and it, <laughs> it truly is one of the creepiest places I have ever been. It's 65 feet underground. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you go through these small little halls until you get to this marker that talks about, hey, you're about to enter the Empire of Death. And lo and behold, you see all of these bones, um, this pathway of bones stacked in such a configuration and such an elaborate one that it's just... It's like the Vatican of bones. It's too much. It's almost, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah. And you, you imagine the person responsible for arranging all those bones and wonder if, if he went absolutely mad with the task. <laughs> now, were you there on an official tour or was this, uh, like a secret underground Parisian rave you were attending? Yeah. I can't really, uh, tell you <laughs> the details of how I got there. It's just that I got there. Okay. Now, of course, they aren't just there willy-nilly for people to ply off the sewer covers and jump down and have a party in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the catacombs have a, a very long history that actually started with the Romans. Yeah, I mean, of course, you can go back even even further in history. You can go back like 45 million years to where you had just a, a sea, sure. a tropical sea, uh, instead of Paris, France. And uh, eventually, uh, the seabed sediment turns into limestone. And this is key, of course, because uh, most naturally occurring caves form from limestone uh, via dissolution. Uh, and uh, limestone is soft yet firm. So it's a great stone to use in construction as well, which is what the Romans were doing, right? Yeah, they were but, like, ooh, look at all this delicious limestone. Let's yeah. carve it out and make things out of it. Yeah, they eventually 
created the the uh, the Roman city of Lutetia, uh, the city that would eventually become Paris. Mm-hmm. And in the the process, uh, they made they they dug up these quarry pits that resulted in roughly 187 miles of underground tunnels. And uh, these these quarries ended up providing the stone for even uh, such uh, such modern post Roman constructions as uh, as Notre Dame. Well, and and they they remained that way for quite a bit until the 18th century when they were long abandoned and someone scratched their head and said, hmm, this could really solve our public health problem, namely like all these bodies that we have piling up um, from various diseases. That's right. I mean, you had uh, you had such large central cemeteries as uh, as saints innocents or uh, what's the French on that? Uh, well, this is not Holly Fry uh, certified, but I'm going to take a step. Sans innocence. Okay. Okay. See, I took German, so I'm, I'm useless on this one. But, uh, but yes, uh, St. Innocent's one of the, the main cemeteries, the largest cemetery in Paris. And you had a situation where you had the bodies were just improperly buried or weren't, weren't buried yet. Uh, it was just, their things were just stacking up. We've been burying uh, people in the cemetery for, uh, for quite a while. And so what are you going to do? Well, you, Dig those bodies up. Mm-hmm. You take the bones and you deposit them somewhere. Yeah, it took two years to do that, by the way. And then between 1787 and 1814, bones from other cemeteries were also transferred. And the final transfer of bones took place in 1859. Now, there is a ton of history in those bones. I mean, you have the bones of Robespierre from the French Revolution. Ah. Um, I mean, it's just it's a it's a piling up of historical events and historical diseases. Yeah, all just cataloged there in the uh, the catacombs, uh, and to the tune of what, like seven million dead Parisians down there. Yeah, seven million dead Parisians, perhaps some people of other nationalities. Yeah, uh, stirring about there, but that is why when you go into this, it is so it's just like staggering. To see that amount of bones configured in that way. Again, we are talking about 187 miles of these tunnels and various other little areas. Um, there's, there's a place, uh, where I, I think they called it like the foot bath for the quarrymen. Mm-hmm. That's just this big open pool. That's sort of fascinating too, to be, you know, in this configuration and then just happen upon this pool. Yeah. So, um, it really is sort of this empire of death underground, which is fitting. Yeah, I mean, it really gets down to some of the, you know, the fascinations we just have with the skeleton. Like, what are we to make of the skeleton? This, this, this part of ourselves that remains after all the, the flesh has has gone away, and so, and sometimes lingers for quite some time. That that is, it's us, but it's also just a part of us. Uh, you know. What are we to make of the skeleton? Well, and keep in mind, too, that until humans really started messing about with skeletons, I mean, the natural thing to happen would be deterioration for it Mm -hmm. just to become part of the leaf litter, which in large part it still does, right? Yeah. Um, If you have sort of your traditional burial. Um, But, yeah, I mean, it was uh, for me, it's the sort of grappling with what life and death is. In yeah. this attempt to take these bones, arrange them, give meaning, preserve them, hope that there's an afterlife for them. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I mean, a, a lot of that is what Western funeral practices come down to is this idea that there's going to be a, an actual physical resurrection of the dead. And we got into that a bit in, uh, well, in a couple of our episodes, the problem of immortality and then also the problem of hell, both of which deal with, uh, 
what do we do? Our, our ideas about what happens to some permanent, supposedly permanent part of ourselves uh, when uh, when we pass on. Yeah, and we were actually just talking about this before we started recording this episode about that song, Dem Bones, which oh, is yes. sort of like we think of a children's song. Like, yeah, you know, the like, Bones connected to the... Pelvic bone, I don't know. Um, That's actually an African spiritual that is talking about, if I've got this right, resurrection. That all these different parts are fitting back together so that this person can, you know, have a resurrection. It's pretty fascinating when you when you compare that to, say, the uh, the practice of sky burial. Uh, in Tibet and also in parts of Mongolia mm-hmm. and elsewhere, where the the idea is to just break everything down and and just have it be reabsorbed by nature to the point where you actually uh, someone is pulverizing the bones. Now there is an idea in terms of green burials yes. that ossuaries could make a comeback. In other words, this practice of moving bones could continue. Um, because as they decompose, you could then add it to an ossuary and then could sort of clear up that land and reuse it for another burial. I, yeah, I really like the idea. I, I, the more I read about green burial, the more I'm on board with it. Um, though I guess ultimately anyone's death is, you know, it's, it's in large part in the hands of what, you know, the people that come after you. But uh, I think there's something more, there's far, something far more beautiful about your body being broken down, becoming part of nature instead of being sealed away in this, Artificial box right. pumped with all these artificial chemicals, uh, you know, for what? For what purpose? Well, and again, I think it's like us trying to grapple with the questions of life and death yeah. and put some sort of form to it and organize it and make ourselves feel better about it. Um, but the ossuary route is really a lot more practical or any sort of green burial. Yeah. Um, you know, because again, we've got the population explosion currently and coming mm-hmm. online in the next 50 years we don't have any more territory to explore to to really sort of grow our food or bury our dead so yeah i mean our cemeteries are nice but let's maybe we should stop making new ones you know that's this land that can be used for other other purposes so yeah for my part i say let the flesh fall off my body let the lammergeiers have my bones let them drop them from 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 from, from on high onto some stones and then eat the marrow Wow. So if you did have some sort of traditional burial, that would be on your tombstone. Uh, yeah, I guess. I don't know where the tombstone's going to go, though. I guess. I know. In, like, you know, my descendant's living room or something. Or you just, you find some stone and you deface it somewhere and say, hey, I existed, uh, my body rotted, and then some birds messed with my bones. Or it's your virtual tombstone. There you go. All right. The, go. the virtual Robert Lamb that exists online. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to handle some skulls. Does that mean that we're going down to the basement? Yes. Ah. Yes. To the artifacts. Let's look at some skulls. You know, you you look at the human skull, and um, a lot of things go through your head. We've already discussed uh, some of this. You know, it, it appears to be smiling at you or laughing at you. Uh, with its uh, with its big grin and its its gaping sockets, but uh, you know the more we look at it, the more we look at the skull, and the more we look at the human hand. Uh, and incidentally, um, the hands and feet contain over half the body's bones because mm-hmm. these are you know these are delicate instruments uh, that are uh, that that have evolved for uh, you know the fine manipulation of uh, of, of items and tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the more we look at them, though, we can tell that the the hand. 
particularly the fist, was made for punching the skull. And the skull <laughs> uh, evolved to receive the fist. The skull and the fist are, are mm-hmm. made for each other. They are they're, they're, they're lovers across time. And, uh, and, and when you look at the, the science of it, it's, it's really fascinating. They're, I don't know that I would say they're lovers across time, but I would say they have certainly connected across time. That's right. University of Utah biologist David Carrier and Michael H. Morgan, a University of Utah physician, contend that these human faces of ours, um, especially those of our Australopith ancestors, evolved to minimize injury from punches to the face during fights between males. Mm -hmm. And their paper is titled Protective Buttressing of the Hominin Face. Yeah, they said if we look back four or five million years uh, at these ancestors, we find an increased robustness in the particular facial bones that are most likely to suffer fracture uh, during a pummeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are, these are the areas where we also find the greatest differences between male and female facial structures, both in Australopiths, both in Australopiths and in humans. Because again, uh, the structures may have evolved in response to that male on male, uh, violence. Now, initially, the idea was something like the, this really strong jaws were needed to, you know, break down nuts or, yeah. you know, really hard foods. But more and more of this evidence in these resulting studies suggests that, no, it's not just to break down nuts, and there is a difference in gender. Yes. Now, previously, uh, back at this uh, study about the skulls came out in 2014, but uh, Carrier back in 2012 had looked at the bones of the hand. And this is a study where he revealed that uh, proportions of the human hand allow us to make a fist that protects all of those delicate bones and muscles and ligaments during a uh, jaw-shattering right hook. Because, again, it's kind of crazy when you think about it, like these hands, right, these 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 fine manipulative uh, uh, limbs that we use to uh, to make tools, to make fire, to prepare food, to mm-hmm. put food in our mouth, that we're going to then take those fine instruments and punch people in the face with it. I mean, that's like like a, a violinist is going to take uh, uh, his or her Stradivarius and then swing it uh, at an enemy during a battle. It, it doesn't make sense, right? Well, uh, the, the argument here from uh, Carrier's research is that we evolved to deal with that. Uh, no other primates, uh, or any animal for that matter, can actually throw a punch. Uh, you don't see punches thrown with chimps, with gorillas, none mm-hmm. of them. It's a human thing. Uh, and uh, Carrier argues that our earliest ancestors may have benefited from an evolutionary advantage if they could actually punch hard without injuring uh, those five fingers. Then they're going to win mates. They're going to win resources. They're going to win tribal honor. Furthermore, Carrier also found that a punch is always going to be better than a slap or a chop. Now, I've, I've, uh, I don't I've, know about the chop. That can be really effective. Well, a chop, yeah, a chop can be effective. And I've, I, when I shared this study uh, a few years back when it first came out on, uh, on social media and on our blogs, uh, I, I, I did have some conversations with people that were arguing, uh, uh, against that, uh, people who are, you know, had a little more uh, expertise in martial arts saying, mm-hmm. well, actually a chop, uh, you know, can be extremely effective or a, or a palm thrust, et cetera. Uh, but Carrier's, uh, research found that a, a peak, that peak strike force is always the same no matter what manner of hand blow you're using, but the fist delivers all of this force to a smaller area. 
So according to him, the force per area is up to three times greater with a punch to the face versus a slap to the face. Now, Carrier says, quote, if indeed the evolution of our hand proportions were associated with selection for fighting behavior, you might expect the primary target, the face, to have undergone evolution to better protect it from injury when punched. In other words, coevolution. Yeah, I mean, an arms race, essentially. Almost literally an arms race. Right. The you can just, you can just arm, swing right? that big meat club at me. Okay, fine. I'm going to, my jaw's going to get much bigger to absorb that so it doesn't break as easily. Now, all of this being said, uh, Michael H. Morgan, one of the study's uh, co-authors says, quote, our research is about peace. We <laughs> seek to explore, understand, and confront humankind's violent and aggressive tendencies. Peace begins with ourselves and is ultimately achieved through disciplined self-analysis and an understanding of where we've come from as a species. Through our research, we uh, look at ourselves in the mirror and begin the difficult work of changing ourselves for the better. I think Michael Jackson said the same thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, really, when it comes to changing ourselves for the better, uh, we'll get into an example of this later on, but uh, humans have always been uh, into finding ways to hack their bodies and indeed hack their skeletons in ways that match up with their own expectations uh, of the human form. Well, you know, this this whole study, too, makes me think of just the uh, the complexity of of evolution. Uh, like, imagine if it were a boardroom or a committee trying to determine uh, what shape the, the, the fist or the skull would take. Uh, because on one hand, you would have individuals saying, all right, look, uh, it needs to be a delicate, uh, a delicate system of fingers so that we can do some fine manipulation of crafting projects, of, uh, uh, you know, of the various interactions with mm-hmm. the natural environment. Uh, but also it needs to be able to punch somebody in the face. And likewise, the, the face department are saying, well, uh, this is essentially a communications array. We have our sense organs front loaded at the, the, at the top. Uh, we want, uh, you know, all the faces to kind of look, look the same. So so mm-hmm. that there's a so that any like, small uh, uh, difference uh, c- can have an emotional response on the viewer, but also it needs to be able to take a punch just head on without uh, too much damage occurring. Yeah, and especially when it comes to the hands, I really f- feel like that potential for peace or thoughtful um, uh, ways in which to enter a situation and war are contained within because yeah. you do have that intricate system that that thumb the placement of that that is um, gives us that sort of advantage with tools and that grasp that no other species has and at the same time it also gives it the strength to just wallop a big old punch but i feel like that like the tool using thing should win out here yeah. that that thoughtfulness of like okay how do we proceed we can use tools we can use our minds and use communication getting into the universality of uh, of, of sign language we can just use these hands to actually communicate but uh, or you know or we can chop people in the face and punch them yeah yeah choice is yours all right we're going to take a quick break and when we come back more bones Mwah. All right, we're back. Uh, let's let's discuss another ossuary of sorts, uh, one that is tied in with uh, with with a, a central figure in the, the history of um, of the United States of America. Ben Franklin, of course. Oh yes, and he's come up before. We've talked about his air bath, yes, in which he would just you know hang out naked during the middle of the night and read when he couldn't sleep. Well. He is associated with this ossuary. Uh, did he know about it? We're not quite sure, but let's sort of unravel this for you. We're talking about 
number 36 Craven Street in London, which was Craven Street, Craven Street, mm-hmm. which was once home to Benjamin Franklin. He resided there between 1757 and 1775 when he was the ambassador for the American colonies. Now, that's all very fine and well, but in 1998, the house received extensive renovations. And during that, uh, excavations and renovations were halted because in the basement, a thigh bone was found. Yes. The police were called. Uh, they began to dig out more from this pit in the basement, and they found some 1,200 pieces of bones. And initial examinations revealed that the bones were the remains of 10 bodies, six of them children, and uh, they were about 200 years old, um, which all of a sudden cast a new light on Ben Franklin. Yeah, and it's... Uh it was probably kind of a pretty interesting, if maybe even a little scary, uh, there for, for a few minutes with the, the friends of Benjamin Franklin House who were, uh, who were orchestrating this whole attempt to, to, to get this house in shape. Because, mm-hmm. uh, in, as far as places, uh, Benjamin Franklin had lived, like this one stood, uh, this one was a, was a good one to renovate and, uh, and, and, and turn into a museum devoted to the man. And here you go digging around underneath it and you find this windowless room with a pit full of bones. <laughs> and what are you to make of it? Now, now, granted, we're talking about London here, and so mm-hmm. and London is is an old city. And if you dig down deep enough in a place like London, you're going to find just about anything, right? You're going to find bones. Yeah. Um, Mental flaws in their article about it asked the question: Well, was Franklin a serial killer? Yeah. It was, no. No. But yeah. th- it still leaves room for other questions, like: Was he a necromancer? Was he was he a ghoul? Was he a bone fetishist? I don't know. The more likely explanation, <laughs> and we'll never know. Is that he had a friend who who definitely owned a saw and uh, and a drill probably even and he happened to be an anatomist and um, sure enough when people looked at further analysis of those bones they saw saw marks scalpel scraping and drill holes yes. and so the story that begins to emerge is that these bodies were taken apart in a in a very thoughtful manner and probably by an anatomist. Yes, the anatomist in question, William Hewson, who had previously been a student of anatomist William Hunter, but the two had a falling out. Uh, Hewson broke away, but he continued his studies. Now, this was an, an interesting time to be an anatomist, because to study human anatomy, you need examples of human anatomy, anatomy to study. I mean, e- even today, you do, you d- despite all of our, our resources, our illustrations, our models, um, the, the use of computers... To really explore the human body, mm-hmm. you need cadavers. You need medical specimens to to cut into, to look out, to study. And at the time, these uh, were not easily obtainable, at least in an, in an ethical sense. No, I mean, you yeah. can always get human bodies, but you got to be willing to put in the work or pay for that work. Yeah, well, cadavers for medical students, um, which the demand for dovetailed with the increase in medical students, by the way, created a black market for dead bodies. And these bodies were obtained by people called the Resurrection (laughs) Men. Yes. And this is just a really unsavory piece of history. And the reason why people had to go to the black market is because the Anatomy Act of 1832 wasn't in place yet. And the Anatomy Act... Um, kind of loosened up the laws a bit in terms of getting cadavers. So people had to go to grave robbers, essentially. And this really marked 
the the whole medical profession because people begin to get, of course, a little bit paranoid and not, you know, like if you introduced yourself as a doctor at a cocktail party back then, you might say, whoa, <laughs> I know I have an uncle who's terminal and, and right on the edge. Um, please don't go hunting after him. Yeah, I mean, the idea here was that if you die and you're buried, there was a chance that uh, a doctor, an anatomist, would dig you up and essentially desecrate your body. And if you were extremely religious and literal about everything, you could you could say, well, they're going to undo everything that my my burial set out to accomplish. Which loops back to Houston, because here's this guy who's just trying to further his education. Mm -hmm. He's got his friend Franklin, who may or may not be in town. And Franklin has, you know, this great little setup in this house. And by the way, Houston's mother-in-law is the landlord of this. Ah. So, oh, in the location of oh, yes. of uh, this Craven Street house has uh, at one end the gallows mm. and on the other end the cemetery. So all you have to do is take a right or left outside of the house to go ahead and get that body and get it there quickly, which would have been really helpful for Houston to practice his anatomy on. Yeah. Now, of course, you get into the question, how much did Benjamin Franklin know? On one hand, it's possible that he didn't know anything. It's possible, you know, that uh, the, in fact, the friends of Benjamin Franklin House reportedly have some some evidence that that Franklin let Houston have just the whole house mm -hmm. uh, while he was living up the street uh, with a landlady during that time. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that's one possibility is that he had no idea. He was essentially, uh, you know, home alone. And so he brought in brought in the, the 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 cadavers for study. Or he was like, "The smell is so terrible. I am moving I'm up the street. Up, yeah, going up the street. Yeah. Or you know, to, maybe to some extent he was he was aware of it. I mean, Franklin, you know, f seems to have been a a free thinker in in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe he was like, "All right, you know, do what you got to do as long as you know I'm not going to have anything to do with it. But uh, you know, just look the other way and let you continue what you're doing. Yeah, I'll be upstairs taking an air bath. Yeah." Or maybe he was in all the way. Maybe, maybe he said, "Hey, you want some corpses? Let's go get it. Let's let's go get them." <laughs> I can't sleep. I just woke up. I was just was just going to read naked in the setting room. But uh, if you're up for uh, you know hitting the cemetery, then let's let's go do it. I'm up for a party. An alternate history of yeah. Ben Franklin. Why not? I mean, they, we have a um, alternate uh, fictional account of Lincoln, right? Yeah, as the vampire slayer. Yeah, if we can have something that ridiculous with virtually. Nothing historical to back it up. Mm -hmm. I mean, here is here is a, a, a piece of history, a little nugget from history that's just begging for exploitation. It really is. And we've already we have properties that have exploited uh, the, the grave robbing at the time. You know, Burke and Hare and all that. I think there have been several movies about uh, about those uh, resurrectionists. But here you have uh, an American icon, uh, Ben Franklin. And he is living on top of a, a pile of bones and their, their pilfered <laughs> bodies being brought into his house. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't even have to add much to that. Just on its yeah. own, that would be a great little, uh, little comedy, but you can, It's half written already. Yeah, throw in some ghosts, throw in some necromancy, a ghoul, what have you, and you're, you're good to go. Now, if you're interested in some historical fiction about this, there is a great book called The Dress Lodger by <laughs> Sherry Holman. And it's about a prostitute and a disgraced doctor. And she's called the, it's called the dress lodger because at that time, uh, prostitutes would sometimes rent really upscale looking dresses. So they didn't look like sort of these third tier prostitutes that might be diseased and they get more mm -hmm. business, which is in and of itself really interesting. Yeah. I mean, you dress for success, right? Indeed. Yeah. Embodied cognition. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We've been down here in the ossuary for quite a while. We probably need to break and pick this up in a second episode. 
Yeah, I'm getting a little, I don't know, claustrophobic. Yeah, I would say lonely, but there are a lot of bones down here. And they, after a while, they kind of kind of feel like those skulls are watching you. And talking to you. Hey, in the meantime, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes, our blog posts, our videos, as well as links out to our social media accounts. And if you have a thought, please do share it with us. You can send us an email at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 